Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Market Foolery. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Go to grammarly.com/fool and get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. It's Wednesday, December 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio from MFAM Funds, Bill Barker. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. The market is closed today, so we're going to dip into the Fool mailbag. And let's just jump right in. By the way, you can always email us marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address, as Tom George did. A uh, question from Tom George Is the size of index funds becoming dangerous? And he included a link to a commentary from the father of index funds himself, John Bogle. Yeah, and Bogle's uh, article talks about not so much the returns to investors or any volatility, which is what index funds are sometimes spotted up as perhaps having a problem, given the concentration of certain fund or certain stocks in index funds, but really on the voting power of shareholders and corporate governance. That is, if the trend is that uh, there may soon be 50% of the market in index funds, and index funds themselves are highly concentrated in the three largest players, that being uh, um, Vanguard, State Street, and uh, BlackRock. Uh, then, what you know, who's going to be exercising actual voting control over over boards? And uh, that's what his article is about. I understand the point that's being made, but I just I got to be honest. It takes something pretty extreme for me to say, "Well, I'm just going to ditch the index fund that I have with Vanguard as a result of that." I mean, just the vehicle itself, the the low cost option in terms of corporate governance. I'm not thinking about my index fund investment in that regard. I will think of my own individual stock investments in that regard, but I don't know. It's it's not if they're becoming dangerous, they're not becoming dangerous enough for me as an investor to say I want out. No, and I don't think that the argument is that the index funds themselves will end up with lesser returns because of this, but more that the uh, the governance and who. Uh, is exercising voting control over the decisions of companies. Where is that going? And uh, you know, to his credit, John Bogle is not saying, "Oh, don't worry about it. Vanguard has got 51% of the index market, and they're good people, and so we never need to worry about them doing the right thing." Uh, he, uh, his outlook is this is a structural, a potential structural problem. Uh, and one that people should be aware of, and you know that when things change, there are costs. There's no there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? And as great as index funds have been for investors, and the article itself points out uh, with approval the description of uh, the 500 index fund as the most consequential or the best thing that's happened to investors, and so he's definitely positive on what has been achieved. Uh, and in fact, the liquidity, the ability of investors to today get for either virtually nothing or actually nothing, uh, in the case of Fidelity's new index fund products, 
uh, a, a wide diversification for their investments at any moment, at any time, uh, comes with a cost, and and that is that as they become more and more and more attractive, uh, the voting rights aggregate into fewer and fewer hands. Question from Tom Smith in Antioch, California, and this is from a few weeks ago. Tom writes, "I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts about." Anheuser-Busch InBev's announcement that they're cutting their dividend by 50%. Um, I'm not a, a shareholder of AB InBev, so I I probably saw that headline, but it, it it completely flew by me. You're not even particularly a user of uh, AB InBev. I'm not even remotely a user of <laughs> of AB InBev or any or any similar beer products. Uh, well, yeah, I've got some thoughts, uh, but better than my thoughts are the thoughts of uh, Nate Weissar, uh, colleague at MFAM Funds, and follows the stock closely. And uh, yeah, it's not a good sign whenever somebody is cutting the dividend. Why are they doing that in this case? Because they made a miscalculation in racking up the amount of debt they did to make the acquisitions that they have of about $109 billion. Uh, in net debt, and they've got to pay that off, and there's not sort of a, an immediate danger. They've got that debt stretched out over more than a decade, but in 2020, they do have a, a fair amount of it that, that's rolling over, and so it behooves them to get some of that paid. And by cutting the dividend, they've freed up a significant amount of additional cash a year. To pay that, but the original program was hey, we've made these acquisitions, it's going to work out, we're going to be able to keep the dividend, we're going to be able to raise the dividend, and we're going to be able to pay off all this debt. And that story has now changed. So I'm reminded first and foremost of General Electric when the dividend, when the first dividend cut came earlier this year, and what was basically said by everyone was well, this is the right move. And this may, in fact, be the right move for AB InBev as well. But to your point, yeah, I almost, I almost want to linger when that happens and say, wait a minute, let's 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 talk about what led to this point, because even if it is the right move and even if it works out in the end, someone really blew the math on this one. Yeah, well, yeah, and they blew it in the sense of trying to grasp where the beer market was going, and people are, to a degree, uh, exiting the beer market, or the, at least the portion that uh, Budweiser, AB and Bev, is Anheuser Busch, uh, and so Bud and Bud Light are diminishingly relevant beers, as big as they are, as many Super Bowl ads as they will buy, as much as we all care about Bud Bowl, nevertheless, I was going to say as much as we care this time of year about the iconic Clydesdales, oh, uh, you know, commercials sure. exactly for the holidays. Who doesn't love those? So I was at an investor uh, conference a couple of years back, and uh, the Anheuser Busch. And I know I've spoken about this on the podcast, so I'll try to talk more quickly than I normally do, which listeners will be happy about. Uh, and and so anyway, this guy got up there and he had 20 minutes to you know give the spiel. And mostly what he talked about was the Budweiser commercials on the Super Bowl, as if this was a company that produces commercials, which incidentally lead to the sale of beer. 
And wait, this is a Budweiser executive. Yeah, yeah. This at, was like at an investor day, just standing up talking about look how great our ads are. It was, I think, a highly relevant uh, item about hey, do, should you be investing in our company? Well, let me tell you about our our ads on the Super Bowl, and people really loved them because. <laughs> <laughs> well, look. What? Why? Why else are people drinking Budweiser? They're drinking it because they grew up drinking it, or because they are inundated with ads uh, for it. And so, it is a highly relevant part of the business, as it is for Corona. Uh, and they've done very well uh, with their ad campaign, or had been doing well. And there's beginning to be weakening in Corona and Stella. Even though uh, uh, you know it's it's look it's a it's a huge thing. People still drink a lot of beer, but a lot of the incremental beer purchasing is going to higher end microbrews and things like that. And the cut that is left for Budweiser is diminishing. Well, and on top of that, I mean they you know they're cutting their dividend. And on top of that, when you look at the stock, it's down about thirty percent. Year to date, I mean, you and I were talking the other day um, about J.M. Smucker, um, and I made the point that that stock is, you know, basically flat for the last five years, um, which, you know, compared to AB InBev, you know, that looks phenomenal. That looks like that's tremendous outperformance. Um, and by the way, say what you want about J.M. Smucker, they have steadily increased their dividend over that five years. So if you're a shareholder, you're not, you know, you're not getting necessarily the returns, but in terms of an increasing dividend, you got to be happy about that. And if you're on the flip side, if you're AB InBev, if you're a shareholder, I mean, that's got to be one of the top three reasons you own this stock. Yeah, well, for a lot of uh, institutional accounts that are investing specifically for the dividend and have as a thesis for why they hold the stock, that it is going to be a growing dividend uh, story. And that story is. Either over or temporarily halted, uh, or uh, some variant of that, enough so that there are a lot of accounts that say we're no longer going to stick around. And that may well have created an interesting enough entry point that uh, people can get behind. It's trading at the very bottom of its 52 week range. As you say, it's off substantially for the year. And so I'm not saying that all of this leads to. A story that you wouldn't necessarily want to uh, look into today, but it's had negative returns for five years. Quick shout out to Grammarly, a communication app that helps people improve their writing to be mistake free, clear, and effective. They help people show their best self through writing, and it's available across platforms, including online browser extension, desktop editor, and mobile keyboard checker. Their free product reviews critical spelling. And grammar, so you can kick the tires on the free product. But Grammarly Premium looks out for spelling, grammar plus, advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, and readability for different occasions. So whatever you're writing for, whether you're a student and you're writing for school, whether you are updating your resume for a job search, whether you're posting items online to get more customers for your shop. Uh, you can use Grammarly. It's available across platforms, including online, desktop, and mobile. Uh, I just started using Grammarly Premium. It's fantastic. The advanced punctuation is super helpful. So thank you to the elves at Grammarly for that one. Uh, go to Grammarly.com/fool and get 20% off your Grammarly Premium account today. 
That's Grammarly.com slash fool for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. Uh, question from Alan Bishop, and this is not related to investing, but it is related to the bonus episode of Market Foolery that we dropped over the weekend. Inflicted on people. Yes, uh, where we, we talked about James Bond. And uh, Alan Bishop writes, The segment on James Bond rekindled a debate my wife and I had several months ago. Is James Bond a superhero? And before you answer, consider he has no superpowers, only years of extensive training in all types of spy-related minutia, tons of cool gadgets, and the full financial backing of the British government. Now, consider that Batman also has no true superpowers, only years of extensive martial arts training, tons of cool gadgets, and the financial backing of his parents' fortune. If Batman is a superhero, James Bond should be as well. And if James Bond is not a superhero, Batman probably shouldn't be either. That's a pretty compelling point that he's made there. Though wrong. Go on. Well, as we discussed, uh, for one thing, James Bond has no cape. <laughs> there are a bunch of superheroes who don't have capes. Not the great ones. But more importantly, is James Bond, yeah, he's a super spy, but he's not a superhero. He doesn't go around beating up of villains or people who are if somebody's getting mugged, right? Who's going to help him out? Batman. Batman is. Is James Bond going to yeah, he's got he's got to save the world. I mean, he's got big important things to do. He is super. But he's a spy. He doesn't have time to help you get your kitten out of a tree or something like that. Batman might do that for you. Also, uh, as Spider-Man would. I mean, I mean they they got to do some local stuff. James Bond doesn't do anything that's like street level. Also, James Bond is probably the best uh, for his group, and by that I mean you know within MI6. But you know you get to see it. There are different governments around the world that have their own version of James Bond, whereas Batman, among his nicknames, the world's greatest detective. Yeah, well, I, and he's uh, he's he's just he's got a different mandate. You know, he answers to himself. Whereas James Bond has to answer to the Queen, right? Well, and specifically to M, to M, and but really to the Queen. Okay, that's fair. I mean, and, and so uh, regarding origin stories, which we talked about at length on the uh, bonus podcast the other day, I don't think that you could really do a James Bond origin story Netflix thing, but you could do the double O's. I mean, that's in, in extending the brand. I don't think anybody's going to want to go outside of Bond being in movies. Like, nobody, I don't think, is going to say if, if they were to do some sort of TV show of, of Young Bond or, or whatever, or just that, would di- that would dilute the movie power. But the Double O's is a, there are a bunch of other people. Double O four, nobody's, nobody's gone into that. Or I was thinking you were going to the origin of the Double O program, in the same way that the sure. rights, the you know the the book and the movie, the right stuff, is about the the start of the space program in the United States. Yeah, the start of the Double O program. Yeah, and and that would also solve some of the issues that some people are like. Well, how about we have uh, somebody black play James Bond or a woman? Or something like that because they want to see that diversification, and and then there are those like no 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 this is my James Bond he has to be white English guy and and, and that sort of thing I'm not going to weigh in on that but double O there are eight nine other double O's out there yeah there are nine you can you can do a lot 
You can. You can. It's like the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a little bit edgier than the Supreme Court, right? Yeah, nobody wants the origin, the origin story <laughs> of, the, of the Supreme Court. Nobody wants that. Um, the market is closed today for the uh, for the funeral uh, in Washington D.C. for uh, former President George H.W. Bush. Um, we were talking uh, last week um, uh, the passing of not a president, but. Um, uh, uh, one of the the more remarkable uh, performers of the last uh, certainly thirty years or so, and that's Ricky Jay. And and we meant to talk about this on the bonus podcast, we didn't. But but um, uh, for those uh, unfamiliar with Ricky Jay, um, died last week at the age of seventy two, um, and someone who you may recognize in movies, um, uh, particularly David Mamet movies, movies like The Spanish Prisoner and. Heist and others, um, uh, but best known as probably the greatest close-up magic performer in the world, uh, just in terms of being a sleight of hand artist. Um, and you can just uh, do a quick Google search of, of Ricky Jay and find any number of tributes to him. But um, remarkable in the sense that he dedicated his life to this art, where he. Um, would practice six hours a day for decades. I mean, we talk about you know the Malcolm Gladwell and the ten thousand hours. Ricky Jay went well beyond that. He was this perpetual student. Yeah, and you go to YouTube and you can see through the magic of YouTube uh, maybe his best known show, uh, Ricky Jay and his fifty two assistants. Yes, and the whole thing, and it's certainly not the same as being in a small theater. And he did the show for a crowd of maybe a crowd, you know, a group of 60, 70. It, it had to be a very small number of, of participants, and so that they could really see the whole thing and and feel the proximity. Uh, but you can watch it and get a, a taste for it, and as you watch it, it just. My experience is to just be baffled and, and not even try to figure out how he's doing anything because it's so far beyond what I can pick up. Did you ever see him? Uh, no, live, no, no. I, I when we were going back and forth uh, on Slack uh, after he died, I think I I wrote to you that it's my uh, the the biggest artistic related regret that I have in terms of like oh I had the chance to see this performer or the, you know the. For me, it's Ricky Jay. Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants came through Washington D.C. You know, probably 20 years ago or something like that. And I remember looking at that. Oh, that looks great. Oh, how much are tickets? Eh, I don't know. And then the show was gone, and I made the mistake of thinking, Oh well, if he's touring with a show, then he'll probably be back in a few years. And uh, nope, that was the opportunity I had to sit amongst probably 60, 70 other people uh, and witness his mastery up close, and I blew it. We had a moment uh, like that together, of going to see somebody who was the best in the world um, before we were unable to. Do you remember that? Uh, Michael Jordan? We went to see Michael Jordan, and it was not the same thing. It was, <laughs> it was not the same thing because we we didn't exactly have front row tickets. That that was a small part of it. It was yeah, one of the last games he played. He was uh, playing for the the local NBA team, and unlike Ricky Jay, Michael Jordan was not at the height of his powers. 
No, he was still a good basketball player on the court with other good basketball players. He was not somebody who embarrassed himself at the end of his career by hanging around too long. Uh, but he was not the Michael Jordan of six NBA championships when he unretired for the second time and came back with the Wizards. Still, it seemed like a, hey, this is our opportunity to say that we saw Michael Jordan live, and he only came into town once, once or twice a year. Back, I don't remember what the schedule was exactly then, yeah. but uh, worth doing. But it was certainly not like seeing uh, a master up close at the height of his powers. Right. Yeah. Ricky Jay better at what he did than Michael Jordan was at what he did. So he uh, was just they re-aired on Terry Gross Fresh Air, uh, a competitor podcast to this one. <laughs> yes, I. Uh, in the sense that both are both our podcasts. Both are podcasts. <laughs> um, Terry Gross, slightly bigger audience than Market Fullery. But they re-aired the, the Ricky Jay uh, a couple days ago. I guess last Friday. Uh, Terry Gross, who I used to live next door to, until the restraining order. Well, it was it was in an apartment building, and she was in the next apartment over. And actually, so we had cats in our apartment, and one of them was particularly good at getting out uh, whenever I was like bringing bags in or something. I wouldn't notice that the cat would run out into the hallway, uh, which he always did. And occasionally, Terry Gross had to come and knock on my door and say, "You know, your cat is roaming the hall, meowing by our door." Did you ever do anything to make it up to her? Like, like you know, here's a bottle of wine. I'm sorry, you know, I'm I'm sorry about all the times you've had to remind me of this. It was not my impression that Terry Gross wanted me to uh, take the time to interact with her any more than to get the cat out of the way. Yeah, that was good enough for her, and I was uh, glad to do so. You can read more from Bill Barker and Nate. Weiser and all of the uh, crew, the entire crew down there at MFAM Funds. Go to mfamfunds.com. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fuller. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.